Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today we are joined by Dr. Adam Goodman to talk about his new book, The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Goodman is an assistant professor of history as well as Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Adam, welcome to New Books Latino. Thank you, Jaime. Thanks for having me. To start things off, um, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you teach and research? Sure. I'm an assistant professor, as you mentioned, at the University of Illinois Chicago. Um, my home department is the Lat- Latin American Latino Studies program. I also have an appointment in the Department of History. I teach classes on migration, history, and policy on uh, Latinx history, teach classes on the history and culture of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, And this fall, I'm looking forward to teaching a class on the origins of the Central American refugee crisis, which is related to some future research as well. And, you know, I've come to UIC after spending a number of years living in much warmer places uh, than Chicago. Uh, I spent a year uh, living in Los Angeles, uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at USC and doing some research for my book project there as well. And prior to that, I was living in Mexico City for a few years, which was really instrumental for my research. You know, my dissertation out of which this project uh, stems is from the universe, uh, sorry, is about the history of Mexican migration and deportation from the United States from the 1940s to the present. Uh, But the book ended up being a little bit different than that. And it emerged out of uh, a lot of spinning my wheels and a lot of archival research and oral histories, um, an interest in contemporary immigration policy, as well as some of the historiographical gaps and questions I had uh, during graduate school. You know, I also should mention that the contemporary political moment and immigration activism around 2006 the mass marches, uh, and you know, really the energy around protesting um, Obama-era immigration policies, you know, not just the Trump era, but prior to that, there was a lot of activism and organizing happening. And my project emerged kind of in that context and you know, has since you know, taken on some interesting directions, which I look forward to discussing. So let's just jump into things. What led you to write the deportation machine? And what was that process like? You know, I started not as a professional historian, but, you know, after college, I worked for a handful of years, both in college admissions, doing underrepresented student recruitment, uh, as well as teaching high school uh, briefly on the U.S.-Mexico border in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. And it was really, I think, there that my academic interest and intellectual origins of this project, you know, are found. So while living in the Valley, I saw the daily impact that migration policies had on my students and their families, as well as the community writ large. And I became more interested in that as I went to graduate school and began to explore some of the pressing questions um, that I mentioned earlier. And the history of deportation writ large. You know, many people had done extraordinary work. I think Daniel Canstrom, 
um, Lucy Salyer, Mae Nye, Erica Lee, um, Tori Hester, uh, a number of others, Deirdre Maloney, you know, had really done excellent work on immigration policy and deportation around the turn of the 20th century, kind of the legal foundations and the policy foundations of deportation. And then a large number of social scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, and legal scholars had done extraordinary work on the more recent period, maybe the 1980s to the present. Uh, so I came to the project hoping to connect those two, kind of wondering how we got from one to the other. Uh, and also wondering about uh, why and how deportation had so specifically and disproportionately targeted uh, Mexicans. You know, and that's, that's one of the main main things that this book contributes is even more than we already knew, immigration enforcement efforts have targeted Mexicans, you know, with tremendous consequence for individuals and I think for our country uh, as a whole. So those were kind of the, the questions and the context and that brought me to the project. But as I said uh, earlier, it, it really emerged organically over time. And one of the important shifts that happened from the dissertation to the book was realizing that you know, I wasn't writing a history of the deportation of Mexicans. I was writing a history of deportation from the United States, which, if we look quantitatively, happens to be um, almost entirely Mexican, right? Certainly not to discredit or discount the experiences of other groups targeted. And that's something the book addresses as well, you know, from Chinese and Japanese to Central Americans, Muslims, uh, and Arabs in more recent years. But more than anything, it's been the targeting of Mexicans. And I think that raises a number of pressing questions about you know, how we understand what it means to be American, uh, who is an American, and also the fact that this was contested ground. It wasn't just immigration officials that made these decisions um, and that exercised their power. But the book traces the history of people fighting back, how people have organized um, and fought the machine, right, and stood up for themselves and their communities, and in fact redefined belonging in ways that transcend, you know, formal citizenship. And the amount of facts and data in this book is just incredible. Even in the first paragraph of the book, I'm blown away instantly. You wrote. Quote, during the last century, federal officials have deported more people from the land of freedom and opportunity than, have, than they have allowed to remain on a permanent basis, end quote. And you cite that since 1882, the U.S. has deported nearly 57 million people. I mean, that in and of itself makes this book worth reading, right? That, you know, you know you're in for something good. And I think that many of us have a formalized conception of how those deportations were carried out, probably involving a court and a judge, right? Um, but you argue in this book that the deportation system is much more complicated than that. What is the unknown history of deportation? Well, I appreciate you uh, paying attention and appreciating the uh, um, the quantitative work and digging that went into it. Sometimes it, you know, took weeks or even maybe months to come up with some of the statistics that appear in a single line of the book. Um, but I, I was interested in, in the quantitative and the qualitative history here. And I think both matter a great deal, right? And, you know, the book starts with a very simple question, uh, yet a vexed question, right? And that is what kind of nation is the United States? I mean, that's what led me to that comparison of, you know, the number of deportations uh, and, 
in the number of people who have been granted permanent residency uh, by immigration officials and by Congress. And I think it you know, perhaps is an uncomfortable question for many people to address, and it's one that we haven't uh, thoroughly considered. And part of that has to do, as you note, with how we understand deportation, how we define deportation, and why that matters. So what I lay out in the book is that throughout history, there have been three different mechanisms of expulsion that officials have relied on. The first are formal deportations, and these are what we know most about. Oftentimes, historically, they've happened in the context of uh, an immigration courtroom after an immigration judge you know, had heard a case um, and ordered someone deported, although that became you know, less true in recent years as many of those deportations have been streamlined. But what we know much less about, right, and scholars have covered the formal deportations pretty thoroughly. Now, they haven't studied voluntary departures nearly as much. And I kind of put scare quotes around voluntary because there's nothing voluntary about them. Uh, They're a euphemistic, um, bureaucratic term um, in which officials forced, coerced, convinced people to agree to an administrative deportation, right? And what I liken them to in the book are the role that plea bargains play in the criminal justice system, right? Prosecutors have you know, come to rely on plea bargains. The whole criminal justice system wouldn't really work unless a large percentage of people agreed to plea bargains. And how does that happen? It's by threatening people with extraordinarily long uh, sentences, right? To get them to take you know, a lesser sentence, perhaps. Voluntary departures were similar. Right? The consequences of accepting voluntary departure were not as severe as those for formal deportations, but it still meant that people had to leave. They were required. They were confirmed. Uh, people still had to leave the country. And then the third mechanism are self-deportation campaigns, which have been in the news in recent years, certainly uh, you know, Mitt Romney, uh, former Republican uh, presidential candidate, had made it a central piece of his immigration uh, policy proposals. And you know, Donald Trump and his administration have you know, really operationalized these self-deportation campaigns, which are a combination of fear, uh, encouraging people to leave supposedly on their own. Although, as I show in the book, it's really in direct response to uh, punitive laws and policies, hateful rhetoric and speech that's, you know, um, really spread through the media in addition to through public officials and sometimes even ordinary citizens who could, you know, threaten violence or in fact enact violence on migrants in hopes of getting them to leave. So 90% uh, roughly 85 to 90% of all deportations throughout U.S. history have happened through those second and third mechanisms, the voluntary departures and the self-deportations. And yet we know very little to nothing about them. You know, most scholars have mentioned them perhaps in passing, if that, you know, but that's really where my book is you know, intervening, I think, making an important contribution and showing that if we want to understand the history of deportation from the United States, we need to understand how 85 to 90% of those deportations have occurred and how they've affected migrants' lives, not only you know, when pushed out of the country, but how the very threat of deportation and how these coercive mechanisms and policies have affected people who remain in the country. Right? So it's kind of moving away from a very formal uh, definition of deportation, which is very limited and doesn't really allow us to grasp you know, the power that deportation has played throughout U.S. history uh, the role that it's had in you know, the growth of the bureaucratic state and the immigration bureaucracy, 
the role that you know people have kind of mobilized uh, deportation and immigration policy for personal benefit or for uh, you know financial benefit, and also the ways that you know people have kind of just relied on you know deportation and these coercive mechanisms uh, to implement you know blatantly racist policies that have targeted you know Asians, Latinos, um, and others. And to reshape the nation, you know, in this imagined vision they have of a so-called, you know, USA based on European origin, white, Christian, um, you know, heterosexual um, citizens. And anyone that doesn't fit that really narrow rubric, you know, is not an American. And, you know, people throughout history, uh, throughout the last 140 years, at least, that the book covers you have constantly pushed back against that and fought against that to redefine this country and its citizens and who belongs um, in a very different way. And that's the history that the book traces. And and it certainly does cover a lot of major movements and trends in in U.S. history. Uh, I want to talk about sources. So you draw from archives across the country, um, in local and federal types of facilities. But you also mentioned the lack of archival sources about the second and third mechanisms, as you call them, right? About voluntary departures and self-deportations. I'll rephrase your own question from the introduction. How do you write the history of something designed to leave no paper trail? Uh, Hopefully uh, a little more quickly than I I was able to. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, stops and starts, uh, that's for sure. You know, but you know, one of the things about the the history of voluntary departure and self deportation, as you as you mentioned or allude to, is that there are no records. I mean, that's part of the part of the immigration enforcement bureaucracy's strategy was you know, to cut costs, and in doing that, that didn't didn't just mean reducing the number of hearings, the time people spent in detention, but it also meant reducing the paperwork, uh, and in turn the files available to researchers, though that certainly wasn't something in their mind at the time, or at least I don't think so. I don't know that. Uh, you know, but the process of researching this book took me across the United States um, from, you know, Chicago, uh, where I'm now based, but wasn't at the time, uh, to El Paso, to the Rio Grande Valley, to Los Angeles, to Boston, New York, spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., at the National Archives, and at um, the United States Citizenship Immigration Services uh, History Office and Library, which is a real treasure trove for anyone working in migration history. I'd really recommend anyone um, who's interested reach out to them, uh, try to schedule a visit. They also have some wonderful resources available online. And then I also did a lot of archival research and oral histories in Mexico. You know, I lived in Mexico for a few years, and you know that proved really uh, important to understand the history of deportation, the fact that people's lives continue after expulsion, of course, uh, and trying to understand you know the ways in which deportation was a binational experience for individuals, and the ways in which U.S. authorities figures out figured out ways to make it unilateral and to kind of sidestep um, or skirt any kind of uh, legal you know processes that we might think people are afforded, and to exercise tremendous discretion and authority. To streamline expulsions, but you know the process of researching, um, you know, was frustrating. I would say it was enlightening and frustrating, in part because I wasn't focusing on any particular place, and in part because I wasn't focusing on 
you know, a narrow time period. Right? So that meant that I was casting a wide net and I was pulling in a lot of files, a lot of sources. And I remember early on in my you know, graduate studies, a professor had said that you'll probably use, I don't know, 10% of the sources you find for your book. I feel like I probably used 2%, uh, if that, of the sources that, that I came across. And then there's also some challenges as I got closer to the present. You know, I remember starting this project a decade ago, and I went to see kind of a senior, senior scholar uh, who had worked on, um, you know, worked on questions of immigration history. And you know, the person more or less told me that I, I couldn't do it. I was going to run into problems around the 1950s, 1960s, uh, because the National Archives records dry up around then. And it was going to be very challenging you know, to pull together the history of deportation, kind of a ground up uh, or even a top down view uh, from the 1960s forward. You know, so it took a little bit of creativity to come up with those sources. And that was after a period of feeling distraught and dejected and not sure whether I would, in fact, be able to do it, but, um, you know, lesson learned and, and that oftentimes you can figure out ways and you can find creative workarounds. And part of that for me was in legal records, right? Court cases and records that provided, you know, wonderful details about how the deportation machine worked, but also wonderful uh, information about individuals' lives, kind of the social history that I was interested in documenting, because this is in part an institutional political history. But it's also a social history of deportation and how immigration policies uh, affect people's lives. So that's, you know, that's more or less how I was able to pull it together. But it certainly came uh, slowly but surely. Uh, I maintained faith, and I think that helped in the end. I certainly feel like it paid off. And then the second part was, you know, paring down all of that information that I had and trying to just really zero in on the most important details. So the notes, uh, and I'm thankful to Princeton University Press for this, but the notes are, are pretty extensive. You know, they let me, I think, include around 90 pages of notes. Um, so there's a lot more information for anyone who's interested in some of those additional sources and discussion of the sources, as I think a lot of historians might be. But you know, for people just interested in, in learning more about the history of deportation, you know, I tried to keep the the narrative, um, you know, moving along. You know, Adam, I think sometimes the best histories are the ones they say can't be written. Um, so I'm glad you pushed through on the on the negative feedback you received early on. Um, Got to keep the faith. That's right. So take us to the beginning. Uh, what were some of the early origins of what you call the deportation machine? So the book starts in the 19th century, starts in the U.S. West, in the anti-Chinese movement. And this is, in fact, you know, a really interesting story that, that didn't come to until later in the game. But I start with a man named Charles Fayette McGlashan. Right? And I think some may consider him having lived a really exemplary 19th century American life. Right? He came from you know, European immigrant uh, parents. He was born in the town of Plymouth and Rock County uh, in Wisconsin Territory. And then the family moved west to California in the 1850s. Right. 
And McGlashan went on to become, you know, a very prominent individual of the town of Truckee, you know, close to Lake Tahoe, and remained so for the rest of his life. And today he's really remembered and celebrated, you know, as someone who was a Renaissance man of sorts, right? He was a historian, he was a newspaper editor, he was an attorney, an elected official, uh, he was an astronomer you know, multi-talented individual. But what most remembrances don't mention, as I note in the book, was that he was also an ardent nativist, um, an anti-Chinese activist who developed some of the earliest uh, forms of self-deportation campaigns that we might think of today, right? Supposedly by non-violent means, but in reality, based on the ever-present threat of apocalyptic violence, right? And, you know, he turned to economic boycotts. He turned to threats and intimidation. He turned to um, a number of supposedly nonviolent means, but in fact, you know, enacted tremendous violence, I think psychological, physical, um, and material as well, you know, on the Chinese community in Truckee and succeeded in driving them out uh, in the 1880s. You know, and Beth Lou Williams, who uh, is an extraordinary historian uh, who wrote really influential book, The Chinese Must Go. You know, her work was influential here. Um, And what I learned was that, you know, these self-deportation efforts by local activists were part of a larger story in pushing for federal control over immigration enforcement, right? So the immigration bureaucracy was created in the 1890s, 1891. The federal government gains control um, over immigration uh, through the bureaucracy and is there after, you know, kind of the central one-stop shop as opposed to having state-by-state policies uh, that differed and maybe similar to federal policy later on. But it's after 1891 that formal deportations at the hands of federal officials, you know, come into play in part thanks to the pressure that local activists like McGlashan had put on the federal government. Now, I initially thought my assumption would have been that, you know, once the federal government came into play and once immigration officials, you know, took over, you know, the deportation machine would not be as dependent on these informal mechanisms of expulsion. But the exact opposite happens. This was a real eye-opening moment in the research and writing. And that rather than, you know, evading or rather than, you know, no longer needing to rely on these uh, informal other means of deportation, federal officials needed them more than ever, in part because they had a limited budget and in part because the legal protections put in place, it didn't allow them to apprehend, detain, and expel people at the rate they hoped. So from that power to formally deport someone, came the power to offer administrative voluntary deportations, right? The voluntary departures that I described earlier, right? As soon as the federal officials could threaten someone with an extended period of detention as their case played out, and then severe repercussions for being deported, including bans on reentry, perhaps, you know, jail time prior to that, they started coercing people into agreeing to leave, right? Which allowed them to cut some corners and also allowed them in turn to both expand their individual power uh, as well as the power of the immigration bureaucracy. Right? And figuring that out, figuring out kind of that 
that path as to how the three mechanisms came into being uh, took a little bit of, of legwork and also you know, took me for some unexpected you know, twists and turns. But I found that to be incredibly enlightening and you know, allowed me to you know, think about the remaining history during the last century um, in a whole new light. And it's interesting that the story begins in the anti-Chinese movement in the U.S. West, but quickly we realize that the deportation machine hones in through the majority of the 20th century on Mexican immigrants. Tell us about the period from the starting, I guess, from the 1930s through the 50s and the demonization of Mexican immigrants. What was happening in the mid 20th century um, that led to voluntary departures becoming, as you point out, the dominant deportation mechanism. This is, you know, a crucial point and an important uh, thing I forgot to mention actually in response to your previous question. Uh, But just very briefly, you know, what I found was that, you know, the history of targeting Mexicans for removal did not start with the repatriations uh, of the 1929 to the 1934 period in particular. Uh, That's the the period that's most covered and most thought of, but uh, it's really during World War I. You know, some people have picked up on this and and traced this history, but if we look at voluntary departures, I found files from 1907-1908, which is actually two decades earlier than we had initially thought they'd begun began. And what we find, if we look at voluntary departures and understand that the role they're playing in the deportation machine, is that it's before the 1924 Immigration Act that officials start to target Mexicans in large numbers. And in fact, statistically at least, right, in the aggregate, we see that by 1918-1919, right, the average um, deportee you know, is not you know, a Chinese laborer. It's not a Southern or Eastern European political radical, um, as I think many have thought to this point. But if we look cumulatively at voluntary departures and formal deportations, we see that the typical deportee by 1917, 1918, 1919 was in fact a Mexican laborer that had simply entered the country without inspection. Right. And this is this is an important observation. I think it raises questions about the 1924 Immigration Act. Certainly not to say that that was not a crucial turning point. It, it definitely is. Uh, but the turn toward Mexican labor, I think, happened a little bit earlier than that. And in part, that was because, you know, immigration officials uh, throughout the late 19th, and early 20th century cut off most of the other sources of immigrant labor, you know, from Asia, certainly. Um, and then increasingly so, 1917 Act, 1921, 1924 Act, it restricted immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. So employers and the nation as a whole came to depend more and more on Mexican labor. And that continued throughout the 20th century. And that's in part why immigration officials uh, targeted them as well, right? Not because people simply were coming here or were somehow uh, criminal in nature, which is, I think oftentimes politicians like to place the blame on immigrants and on the individuals themselves, but their labor was sought out. Their labor was needed. You know, immigrate, uh, U.S. employers sent you know, labor contractors into Mexico or to the border to recruit people. Right? We welcomed their labor. Uh, we needed it. 
and immigration officials at the same time were not necessarily willing you know, to welcome people into um, you know the nation state on a permanent basis. And that contradiction is is something that we see playing out for the remainder of their 20th century and beyond. And it's one of the key reasons why uh, Mexicans have been thought of, you know, historically as stereotypical illegal aliens. And this is something I discussed a little bit later in the book, which perhaps we can talk about. Uh, but this, you know, this part of the book, which really uh, covers most of chapter two, combines the mass deportation campaigns of the 1920s, 1930s with the so-called uh, Operation Wetback campaign of the 1950s, perhaps the the largest and most uh, well-known, infamous, uh, without a doubt, deportation campaign in U.S. history. And part of what I was trying to do here was to show how, in a lot of ways, this is a story of continuity. Right? If we look at the machine and trying to understand how the deportation machine works, we see that, in fact, these two campaigns, which are very well-known and well-studied, uh, we see that things are happening, you know, um, more or less along the same lines and that immigration officials have limited ability to affect formal deportations, right, which are number in the thousands during each of those campaigns, but they're deporting hundreds of thousands or in the 1950s, even you know, millions of people um, you know, during the early part of that decade. And it's through these informal means, right, through the coercive means that we've already discussed, the voluntary departures and the publicity campaigns to try to scare immigrants out of the country, right? And the deportation machine, in fact, does not function without those, right? So if we've ever thought about the million people deported um, during fiscal year 1954, and wonderful work has been done um, you know, by Garcia and by Kelly Little Hernandez, on Operation Wetback to show that, in fact, the immigration bureaucracy kind of inflated the stats. They used them to their own benefit uh, to boost their supposed success and to celebrate their accomplishments. They did not deport a million people during Operation Wetback, but you know, supposedly they did deport a million people during that fiscal year. And it was 97% through voluntary departure, right? 97% without wow. due process. 97% kind of streamlined local officials apprehending people um, or federal officials in these uh, squadrons that were organized into these uh, mobile um, teams that would carry out large-scale raids on ranches and factories and sometimes in urban areas like Chicago, which is, I think, one of the novel contributions of this chapter, was showing that Operation Wetback wasn't just something that happened in the Southwest or in California and Texas, uh, which has been covered at great, great length. And I'm also focusing on Chicago and the way that it played out in urban industrial centers in the Midwest. And it's very similar right, in terms of the tactics and approach, but they in fact need to rely even more so on the media and on community agencies, in fact, which can sometimes unintentionally play a role in uh, propagating fear. And this is a really uh, a tricky question that some organizations wanted to help the migrant community and inform them about what was going on. But at the same time, by by spreading the news of an upcoming immigration raid uh, or by kind of taking the immigrant um, immigration naturalization services 
propaganda at face value. Uh, they also helped to spread the fear and do some of the work for them. And according to official records, and it's hard to confirm this, but according to official records in Chicago, more people left the city in response to these fear campaigns than officials apprehended and deported through formal mechanisms. So the chapter, in a way, is able to show that it's through these different, it's through these different mechanisms that the immigration bureaucracy as a whole is able to expand its power, right? And to enhance state power as much as control migration, right? People are still moving back and forth across the U.S.-Mexico border during these years. It's not as if deportation you know, meant um, you know, people wouldn't necessarily come back into the country. But you know, through the repeated apprehension, detention, and then removal of millions of Mexican migrants um, during these years, during this period, officials were able to increase the control of the bureaucracy as a whole as well as their own control on the local level. And I think that when you, you call something a machine, right, the deportation machine, um, that brings to mind money, right? Um, and you mentioned that not much has been written on how immigrants have been deported throughout the 20th century. And it becomes clear that throughout this book, that public-private partnerships, say that five times fast, made deportation a lucrative business opportunity for those moving deportees, and it became a punishment for those being deported. Can you tell us a bit more about that? The business of deportation has played a crucial role, not just in recent years, you know, but for the last century, right? Such that by the 1920s, according to the archival um, information that I've, I've found, you know, people were seeking to make a buck, or many bucks, in fact, you know, on deporting immigrants. Right? People saw dollar signs, uh, and that came at immigrants and non-citizen, non-citizens' expense. Uh, but you know, that was of secondary importance to many people you know, seeking to profit off of deportation and off of punitive immigration policies. So... You know, the business of deportation, you know, is multifaceted, right? I think that, you know, I'm here trying to engage in a few different debates. Uh, you know, certainly one is that most scholars that write on migration oftentimes look at uh, the experiences of migrants and migrant groups. Uh, they also look at the making and implementation of immigration policy. And I think looking at how people are deported, looking at the actual physical process of removal, sheds important light on both of those areas. And it's not just that domestic or foreign policies, right, are at play here, or the immigration, um, you know, immigration policy is a matter of domestic politics or international relations. But we also see if we look and expand the scope a bit to look at the private contractors, we see that interpenetrating and often corrupt uh, partnerships between the federal government uh, and between for-profit companies have oftentimes shaped enforcement practices you know, with devastating consequences, again, uh, for migrants. And in, in part, this only was a, possible because of the state policies 
they created a market in deportable persons, right? It's the state policies that turned deportation into a lucrative business, such that companies could treat migrants as cargo, right? They saw them as a way to maximize profits. Um, you know, and deportation was also seen as an opportunity to discourage people from returning in the future, not just by kicking them out of the country, but by the actual physical process of expelling them, right? Deportation was meant to punish, right? This is something we might think of as a precursor to, to later prevention through deterrence efforts. That's something we've heard about in recent years about the Trump administration's uh, family separation policy for Central American asylum seekers, or in the 1990s, and the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, pushing migrants into more desolate and dangerous areas in hopes that they would stop coming, um, even though the federal officials were well aware of the fact that people, in fact, might die in increasing numbers, and that did happen. That did not result to any changes in the policy. So what we see with the physical process of removal uh, was both people and private companies making a profit off a migrant's misfortune. And we also see the federal government using deportation as an opportunity uh, to punish migrants in hopes that you know, they would not return. So I document the use of buses and trains and boats and planes uh, to remove people from the country, right? And many of those forms of transportation have been used in conjunction with one another uh, or at different times throughout the 20th century. But, you know, there are a few different things driving, driving this process. You know, certainly one were the bureaucratic imperatives and interests of the immigration officials right, in hopes of removing people uh, in a way that would discourage them from coming back. The capitalist interests underlying the, the private companies, right, that were involved in this which I should mention, we're not just from the United States. They're also from Mexico um, and other countries as well. They were looking to get in on this business. And then the third thing that I think resulted in this incredibly punitive uh, traumatic uh, system of expulsion were just racist beliefs that U.S. and Mexican officials had about migrants. And that's something I'm, I'm able to show through a wonderful trove of records of the National Archives that document the history of what they called the boat lift. This was an operation in the mid-1950s that removed around 50,000 Mexicans from Port Isabel, Texas to Veracruz across the Gulf of Mexico, about 550 miles south. And the companies involved in this operation were two different Mexican shipping companies uh, that took cement, they took bananas, they took a whole variety of things from Mexico to the United States and then returned south uh, in those same ships with deportees, right? And I'm able to document and show the kind of conditions on board, uh, kind of the questions I ask, or, you know, what would it, what would it have been like you know, to have been on one of those ships? And of course, it's impossible to recreate that. Uh, but I wanted to get as close as possible to understanding from the perspective of migrants, you know, how do these policies affect individuals? How do they affect families? You know, what were the human costs of deportation? You know, so often we're just thinking of you know, immigration policy in relation to the nation state. How does immigration affect uh, the United States, right? Without 
really looking at maybe how it affects um, immigrants themselves. And I think historians are certainly attuned to that, but the general public um, I'm referring to here, or politicians for that matter. Um, so I'm able to document, you know, this really atrocious um, conditions aboard these ships and the corruption involved, you know, within the Mexican government and within the Mexican companies and carrying out uh, these operations. And I think as a whole, we see that, you know, this history of punishment and the history of profit um, off of expulsion raises larger questions, not only about the way that immigration policy is implemented, but also about the so-called immigrant experience, right? And what I conclude is that, you know, for many people, I think state-sanctioned violence and trauma have been central to their lives um, and central to their histories. And that's something that, you know, not only historians, but I think, you know, politicians and, and, you know, people in the United States as a whole should, should wrestle with and reckon with, you know, to better understand uh, the so-called nation of immigrants. Absolutely. And uh, the other side of this profit coin, of course, are not just the contractors, but then we also have the employers, right? Um, American companies and labor needs. Uh, Let's move into the 60s and through the 80s. You talk about the normalization of deportation for Mexican immigrants. Um, How do labor needs and xenophobia and voluntary departures combine to create a system of circular migration that somehow seem to work for certain groups um, and not others? The key moment of change is after 1965. And many listeners may be familiar with the history of the Bracero program, right, which brought hundreds of thousands, up to around 400,000 in Mexican migrants to the United States on short-term labor contracts between 1942 and 1964, mostly in agriculture. Some worked in, on the railroads as well. But these were short-term contracts in which people would come and work for six months and then return to Mexico and perhaps come back again. Many people um, you know, came and went multiple times. Uh, and over the course of 22 years, employers and consumers in the United States came to depend on the Mexican migrant labor. When the program ended, um, in part because of pressure on Congress and pressure from organized labor in the United States, when it ended at the end of 1964, those labor demands and labor needs did not stop. Right? And many employers continued to welcome uh, migrant workers back each season, or perhaps on even a permanent basis. So the change that happened was the end of the Bracero program in conjunction with the 1965 Immigration Act, which put the first ever cap on Western Hemisphere immigration, and then 11 years later, an amendment to that act, which put a country cap of 20,000 visas from any one country. And this created all kinds of problems, because now People continued to come and go. Uh, it was to the benefit of both employers and to the workers and to both countries. But the migrants and the migrant workers were now considered undocumented, right? They were doing the same thing they had, but because of these two changes, these two crucial changes in the political economy of both countries, they were now considered undocumented and subject to deportation, right? This combined with a number of 
different factors, including you know, economic uh, pressures and crises uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s in both Mexico and the United States at different points, as well as you know, really racist, xenophobic coverage in the mainstream media of migrants. It led to the increasing targeting and the ramping up of deportations to previously unknown levels. Right? We also see during this period that officials targeted Mexicans as never before. So between 1965 and 1985, more than 13 million people are deported. Almost all of them Mexican. I think it's 97% Mexican of those 13 million during the two decades. Now, this was not just a nod and wink agreement between immigration officials and employers. And this is how some other scholars have referred to this period, and that there was a system of circular migration uh, that fulfilled the labor needs of people in the United States and companies in the United States by allowing people to come and go, uh, while it also let the immigration service seem as if it was doing its job, right? By cracking down, carrying out raids, apprehending and deporting people. Sure, they came back then, uh, but supposedly this was a system that worked for everyone that was not punitive in nature. And I argue uh, pretty strongly against that, that the system may have worked for all those involved in some way, but the repeated migration, the repeated apprehensions and deportations had a tremendous impact on individuals um, as well as on how people in the United States viewed Mexicans, right? There's a cumulative impact, you know, of those interactions such that deportation or the possibility of being deported became a part of people's everyday lives, right? Became a part of Mexican migrant workers' everyday lives during that period. I, I did an oral history with a gentleman uh, in the central western Mexican state of Jalisco, and he told me, um, you know, in a very casual way, almost, uh, that he and his coworkers would go to work each day in the fields of a ranch. And he would, as he got dressed, make sure that he hid $20 on his body somewhere in the event that immigration officials came, apprehended him, and kicked him out to Tijuana. And he wanted to make sure he had some money with him if he was deported that day. And that became a reality, you know, for many people. Uh, and immigration officials also really ramped up enforcement efforts in immigrant communities, in Mexican and Mexican-American communities, sometimes apprehending and deporting permanent residents and U.S. citizens, right, which I document in the book as well. But this enhanced kind of enforcement apparatus that developed during this time you know, led some individuals that had lived in the United States, you know, not for days or months or a year or two, but, you know, for many years or even more than a decade in many cases, right? It led them to, you know, feel confined within their neighborhoods and sometimes within their own homes. The creation of internal borders is how I put it, right? And this came through in both newspaper accounts from the time, some archival records and oral histories I did uh, with people, you know, were thinking back to that period, right? And I think this is, you know, a key moment of change. Uh, I refer to it as the dawn of the age of mass expulsion. Because I really think that this is where kind of the deportation machine as we know it today and the dynamics 
of mass expulsions on a regular basis take shape in the mid to late 1970s. Now, from the 1970s until the 2000s, an average of 900,000 people a year are removed, right? This was not the case in the earlier decades when there were mass expulsions, but more on a piecemeal basis um, or single examples that stood out as outliers, not in the constant way that we start to see from the 1975 period forward. And that's why I refer to it as the dawn of a new era. And I think that this is the dynamic that you know, helps us understand you know, the politics of the present uh, as well as, as how we got here. Hmm. So we've heard a lot about enforcement, but as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, this is also a story of people fighting back. What were some of the major strategies that activists used to counteract the deportation machine, which by the end of the 20th century was now manifesting itself through workplace raids and increasingly coercive uh, tactics? The deportation machine you know, has never been static. Uh, it's changed over time and activist efforts to combat it and immigrants' insistence on their belonging you know, have also changed. There's been some continuity, certainly. I mean, people have you know, taken to the streets. Uh, they've turned to the courts as well. Uh, but there's been a lot of change over time as well here. And I think that's important to recognize. At any one time, you know, people looking to contest punitive immigration policies, or to fight deportation, I think the first thing they do is try to understand how the machine works, where the vulnerabilities are at that point in time, and then in turn to press on those weak spots in hope of gaining leverage and in hope of winning the right to stay. And in surprising uh, cases, people have. Um, in fact, a small number of people have brought the deportation machine uh, to a grinding halt or threatened to do so. And I document a case that I think is revealing in this regard uh, that, that started at one of many, I mean, one of hundreds of factory raids that took place in the 1970s in suburban Los Angeles in the town of South El Monte, which is in the San Gabriel Valley. And in the morning of May 17th, 1978, a group of 40 immigration officials left in eight vans and a bus from the downtown LA office, descended upon this factory that made shoes and employed roughly 700 people, some of them undocumented, most of them Mexican, some of them Central American. And they surrounded the factory. And that morning, they went through indiscriminately, asking people for their papers, regardless of, um, you know, regardless of who they were, regardless of the fact that many of them were, in fact, permanent residents or citizens. And they just swept through the factory, apprehending people. They returned that morning uh, to their downtown LA office with 119 people in custody. And by that afternoon, eight hours later, half of those individuals were on their way to the Mexican border to be removed. But the buses never made it to the border that day. And what I learned 
what was that in the background as this was playing out? A group of labor organizers, a group of activist lawyers, a group of community activists had been operating in the background, filed the federal court injunction. A judge stopped the deportation of these individuals who then would go on with the help of this coalition to fight their deportation and to essentially have their deportation orders canceled in many of the cases. In fact, the majority of the cases of those that decided to fight, they had their deportation orders canceled. And it's a really inspiring story in a lot of ways. And it also speaks to the fact that um, the coalition had already been planning you know, well in advance of this raid, people were ready. This wasn't simply a spontaneous act, but in fact, a network of organizers led by immigrants themselves, in addition to those supporting them, you know, sprang into action, stopped the deportation of these individuals, and actually, you know, really, really frightened the immigration officials who understood what was at stake, right? They knew that if these individuals, you know, who were able to win their cases, essentially by adopting um, Know Your Rights workshops and kind of uh, knowing how they could win their cases through not speaking. Simply don't say anything. Don't tell the officials where you're from. Insist on being able to see a lawyer. And the people were trained and prepared when the time came. And these were the days you know, before integrated databases made it very easy for immigration officials to track someone's migration history um, and when and how they had entered the country, perhaps, or if they had prior um, run-ins with immigration law enforcement. And the burden all of a sudden came on the INS to prove where these individuals were from to prove their place of birth, their citizenship. And if the immigrants didn't tell them, uh, that became next to impossible for the overburdened INS and incompetent INS. I think at that time it's fair to say, uh, based on all the reports and the archival information I've found, uh, it became impossible to prove that, to establish someone's citizenship and the fact they were in the country without authorization. And this became a real threat and there's a quote in the Wall Street Journal, I remember, you know, describing the INS's great nightmare was that some part of the one million deportees each year would start to reject voluntary departure. They would start to insist on having hearings. They would uh, not tell or not establish their deportability for immigration officials. Right. The stakes were high. Right. And the organizers and activists kind of mobilized, um, again, with the migrants themselves taking the lead. And they were able to not only win their cases, but through a class action lawsuit, uh, they were able to win a tremendous victory 14 years later, after 14 years of struggle, uh, that immigration officials, you know, a judge ruled that they had to advise immigrants of their rights to a lawyer, uh, to legal um, or their legal right to consult their consul, the right to legal services, right? the right to become a permanent resident or to seek asylum if any of those were available. 
at the time of arrest, not after the fact, not after immigration officials had established someone's deportability. And, you know, that victory, you know, affected up to 1 million people in the United States. It started with just 60 shoe factory workers, but, you know, it had the impact, you know, that was felt much, much more broadly than that. And I think that, you know, this is just one example of many, um, but this constant tension between the struggle over, you know, what it means to be American, the struggle over you know, who belongs in this country is one that we're certainly um, feeling today, but it's been one that, you know, people have been fighting out for, you know, centuries. Wow, that's such a powerful example. And I think one that gives us a lot of maybe hope or uh, inspiration. And speaking of activism, it's currently June 2020, and we are witnessing an unprecedented popular movement for the reform and defunding of police across the country, particularly as it has developed through the Black Lives Matter movement. But as your book has laid out, the deportation machine is also a fundamental part of the United States law enforcement and mass incarceration system, with an overwhelming focus on Mexican immigrants, as we've been talking about. What contemporary policy implications does your historical work have for present day uh, immigration debates and particularly the conversation over immigration policing? This is an important question, certainly one I've been thinking about recently. And I do think that we can learn a lot from you know, past experiences uh, of immigrants and the ways that immigration policies have affected them, uh, as well as shaped this country. And I also think that the present moment, you know, the real incredible uh, activism we've seen you know, from Black Lives Matter uh, activists and supporters and a really broad, diverse, multiracial coalition of people that have taken to the streets, right, following their lead, is that kind of the rules of the game can change, right? The reality is that we may think that certain things are possible, certain things are impossible, but there's this wonderful quote um, that some of the lawyers involved in that, that case of the shoe factory workers had shared uh, in an op-ed that they had written. And that was that history has a way of surprising the complacent. And I think that that's certainly something that they felt then at that time, right? No one thought that a group of undocumented uh, shoe factory workers and their allies could potentially you know, take on and in fact defeat the powerful immigration bureaucracy. But they did that, right? Um, just as I think most people would be surprised with you know, the real broad support of the defunding the police or abolishing the police, um, the abolitionist movements having right now. I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind, important thing for immigration advocates and activists uh, to consider. And it's important to have those policy proposals on the table. And I think what my book shows certainly is that, you know, the system is not working if we're thinking about you know, migrants, if we're thinking about citizens and the fact that it's not easy, we in fact cannot divide us and them so simply despite you know, the repeated rhetoric of politicians that 
might lead one to that conclusion. Um, you know, citizens and migrants alike have been negatively affected, you know, by the prevailing system, and that there's possibilities, you know, to change that. Right? There's possibilities to change that, and you know, we know the tremendous violence that immigration policies, you know, uh, have perpetrated against migrant communities and against permanent residents and citizens as well. I think most people will be appalled to learn that. We know that the deportation machine did not start with Donald Trump. It did not start with Barack Obama or George W. Bush or uh, Bill Clinton, for that matter, right? That the roots are much deeper and the demonization of non-citizens and the scapegoating of non-citizens may be a tried and true tradition, uh, but it's also one, you know, that it, if anything has held us back, you know, both individually and collectively. And I think the present moment that we're in, you know, shows the power of sustained organizing and activism. It's just one more example of that. And the fact that we may think, right, that policies are unlikely to change, and that may be the case. But there are certain moments where, you know, history, you know, surprises us. And I think those are the really interesting moments certainly to write about and to try to understand why it's happening. And that'll be incumbent upon all of us as historians and people interested in history to, you know, both research and write those stories and to better understand them. But I think that just starting with the very fact that, you know, the rules of the game may be changing, right? Or they can change. And that's kind of the first thing that, you know, leads to everything else. Well, thanks for connecting the dots for us from, from then to now. And we're coming to a close on our time. But before we go, could you give us a sneak peek of what's next in the pipeline for you? I'm working on a couple of projects now. Um, you know, one is like a, a broad narrative history of immigration uh, and the fact that, you know, the uncomfortable fact, it's perhaps a better way to put it, but the uncomfortable fact that you know, some immigrants' American dreams are built on the backs of other immigrants. And this is a story that's going to, you know, span, you know, a century, starting in the, you know, the turn of the 20th century uh, with an Italian uh, family. Um, and coming up close to the present um, with a Mexican family. And it tells the story of, you know, how their lives intersect, how they connect, and how in part, uh, you know, the Italian family you know, was able to live their American dream thanks to the labor um, and, you know, the sweat of their co-ethnics, Southern Eastern Europeans in the early 20th century and later uh, Mexican migrants in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, unfortunately, you know, for the Mexican migrants and for their family, for some of them at least, you know, because of changes in the global economy, that American dream was no longer available to them. Right? Um, the ways in which you know, the global economy shifted, right? the industrialization, immigration policies, and you know, those stories, I think, are part of the same narrative when other scholars have treated them as separate, comparing Italians then, Mexicans now, to put it you know, crudely. And I know that many people have worked on this question, but 
that's something that I'm interested in showing how those stories are in fact one and the same and connected and how we need to understand them as such. And a second project, you know, which I'm really just uh, getting into a little bit more deeply now, discusses the, the origins of the Central American refugee crisis, which is in part why I'm looking forward to teaching this class in the fall. Uh, but it would also tie in you know, some of the broader you know, themes that have been prominent in U.S. and global history you know, since the 1970s. Well, that's refugee migrations, you know, U.S. empire and imperialism, and also you know, urban uprisings um, throughout the Americas. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, but first, I'm going to try to catch my breath, uh, having just wrapped up work on, on the deportation machine. Well, thanks for sharing with us. And without further ado, we'll let you get back to work because we want to read those books ASAP. Thanks, Jaime. And once again, listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Adam Goodman about his new book, The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants, out this month from Princeton University Press. Adam, thank you so much for being with us here on New Books in Latino Studies. Thanks for having me.